As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Christopher Verone joins us now, head of technical and macro strategy at Strategus. It is a Baird company. Christopher Verone, thank you so much for joining us. Which chart matters right now? I think there's nothing more important in the world right now uh, in terms of what bond yields do over the next number of weeks here. I mean, 10-year yields have been chopping basically since last October. This is going to resolve itself very soon. We're simply running out of real estate on the chart. I think you start pushing above 390, 395 on 10s, uh, that's a big deal. I think it's a big deal for multiples. I think it's a big deal for the growth value uh, equation. And Lisa, as you point out, very quietly the last week or so, there's been some stalling in tech. And I wonder if that's some reflection in where rates go from here. I also think the weakness in utilities might be a reflection of where rates may go from here. And the move in UK has been absolutely explosive here. You have two-year gilts and 10-year gilts basically back to where they were when all these revelations about LDI and British pensions were revealed uh, last fall. Can you judge technically, and we had a guest yesterday that talked about this, what we really need to see is the high two-year yields come out to a high five-year yield. Do you see within the charts of spreads, the charts of an actual single yield where we're going to broaden out these high high yields into a higher yield regime? You know, what's interesting, we always look at this relationship between twos and Fed funds, right? And and twos have largely traded south of Fed funds since, call it, uh, February or March of this year. They're starting to creep back up there in terms of uh, reclaiming the bar of Fed funds here. And, you know, if you look at who's raised rates recently, the Aussies, the CADs, and UK, um, what's happened in all those markets? They've softened. And what's happened with the banks in those indices? They've softened as well. Canadian banks, Aussie banks, UK banks are all pretty soft here as those central banks uh, have hiked over the last several weeks. There's a real tension heading into this 9.30 a.m. panel of how important the central bankers are in determining what happens next in markets. There was a brief second where people thought maybe we have moved beyond central banks and we're moving to fundamentals. God willing. Are you saying that that's not the case? I don't think it's the case yet. Or at a minimum, I think the message or the interpretation of the bond market to all of this is still paramount in our thinking about what the second half of the year looks like. But you know, Lisa, as you point out, the, the trend here is still the trend, and the trend is in the trend in stocks is still up. Uh, there are areas of weakness, and there are pockets that may get weak, but in 
basically broad aggregate here, the trend in stocks is up. What I want to watch as we think about the second half of the year, we've seen some modest broadening over the last two or three weeks. Does that stall or does that continue? We're sitting here today with about 60% of the S&P above the 200-day moving average. That's a reading that ordinarily wouldn't worry me that much. It's just unusual in a first year off a low that we're not broader. Narrow markets are common, but they're common late. They're not common early in a new advance. You mentioned that we have seen this stalling out in the tech trade. Mm. There have been a number of downgrades from banks saying perhaps it's gone a little bit too far. Are you saying it's more related to the yield story and the waking up to an old paradigm that we saw a whole six months ago that people had abandoned (laughs) when we had the no landing, the soft landing, and the maculate disinflation of, say, February? You know, it feels like a different world ago. We, we, We spent basically 21 and 22 thinking the world had changed and we were on the cusp of some big regime change for that view to be massively challenged over the last three or four months. My suspicion is if we really get rates up here, and I'm talking, say, above 4 on 10s, maybe above 410 on 30s, new highs on 2s, you're going to really begin to question some of the valuations that are put on these tech names. And I wonder if that's why there's a hint of them starting to stall here. It's not everywhere. Apple made a new high yesterday. But quietly, Google's come in here. AMD's come in here. Microsoft has softened a touch. They've all ridden their 50-day averages all year. I think those would be very big levels moving forward. And if you want to look at a test, this is a different sector, but use this as a test. The European luxury names, Hermes, LVMH, etc., they've all been very tech-like this year. Those have actually started to stall the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to learn about um, you know, other corners of the world from how those stocks respond right. going forward. Bloomberg with a great story today on, uh, 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 is it Louis Vuitton? <laughs> about Lewis, how it's ESG. It's the latest ESG stock, yeah. Technical analysis is about looking at the past and learning the lessons. We came off the mat 73, 74. Mm. We had a nice leg up. And then in December of 1975, we discovered a second leg up in the market. Can people like Chris Verone discover a second leg before it happens? You know, when I think about markets, I don't really operate in the world of levels. I operate in the world of what is the characteristics of a certain advance. And I I think on balance, when you look at this current advance, the leadership is still pretty risk-seeking. We see it with industrials. We see it with discretionary better than staples. So I would use those characteristics to say nothing really meaningful has changed yet. I think a shift there would cause alarm, but I'm not seeing that here yet. And, you know, Tom, you bring up this 1970s period. It's often referred to as this 10-year range. I, I kind of reject that. It, it was periods of bull and bear markets. Yes, yes, it, it was yes. two years up, two years down. Two years up. It, it wasn't two weeks up, two totally weeks down. Agree. So this idea of the 70s being a range, I actually don't think is very accurate. If you want to look for a range, I think there's some parallels to this market. Kind of post-World War II, 45 to 50, I think is very interesting. Also a period where all the economists kept thinking recession was coming, recession was coming, and it never came. Um, interesting there. Given that fact check, yeah. do you reject this idea that that the past indicators are no longer working, that the <laughs> models are broken, and the technical uh, analysis doesn't hold the same kind of cloud. You know, it's funny. I, I suppose it's your definition of what technicals is. We wake up every morning and we ask ourselves the simple question, does the market agree with the consensus? That's my definition of what technical mm-hmm. analysis uh, is. Anytime in my career where I've 
begun to question whether the indicators are valid anymore in new regimes that are about to become very valid. So I would just keep that uh, in mind here. You know, put that in context of some of the tech names. You know, two, three, four weeks ago, we got what I would only characterize as blow-off-like volume in a lot of these semis. And what do we know historically about blow-off-like volume? It very rarely marks the top but it can begin the sequence of putting in the top. And you were doing about a month ago, you were doing four or five average weekly, uh, four or five times average weekly volume in NVIDIA, AMD, Avago. So some of those makings there are a very blow off y type volume. With all your study of, of charts and the in and out and being bullish, being bearish, does market timing work? If I'm in cash, can I figure out when to get in efficiently, productively, effectively? I might replace the phrase market timing with trend following. I, I think trend following works. I think we can do a pretty good job. I think all of us can do a pretty good job of getting that middle 70 or 75 percent of a move. I haven't yet any. I haven't met anyone yet who's particularly good uh, at the turns. Um, that that middle chunk. We can, you know, all the money in this business is made in the trend and not at the pulse, right? We can, I think, play trends, and that's what we've tried to do. I, I set him up with that question. I knew what the answer would be. And I, just, I think the I, audience did too. Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone agreed. knew that. Guys, the this was is the, be. this is the gospel, the gospel of Verone. I mean, there's no other uh, a, a way to put it. Chris Verone, thank you so much. Thank so you. D d I, I came out of that. You're a bull. I think it's too early to back away from the trend. You there can put we go. your your guard on for some things to change, but watch rates here. Rates will decide the second half of the year. Chris Verone, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. We are heading toward the mid-year level. We are two days away from that reset. And joining us now to help us reset is someone who is resetting in a material way. Joseph Amato, President and Chief Investment Officer for Equities at Newberger Berman, <clears throat> joining us here on set. How are you... Joe, changing your view heading into the second half of this year? Well, we, we've had an intense debate like there's going on in the market. And, uh, you know, our debate within our asset allocation committee probably reflects a lot of the dispersion that exists out there in the marketplace. We've got folks that are quite bullish and we've got folks that are quite bearish. But we went into the year expecting the economy to slow down at a more significant pace and earnings to be uh, more on the disappointing side. And that really hasn't played out necessarily. So we went in underweight. Um, equities and risk assets, we moved up in, in quality. And that's been, you know, so far the wrong call because markets have been pretty good the first half of the year, as, as you guys have talked about. But as we debated the issues, and as it looks like any slowdown is probably extended and pushed out further, the earnings decline pushed out further. Uh, we felt neutralize our bet, sort of live to fight another day and see. We always have a chance to make that a change if we see earnings uh, disappoint. But right now, uh, you know, we took that underweight off and still have a bias toward, toward quality for sure. So there's going to be more of an aggressive shift, albeit on the margins, heading into the second half. We've been debating all morning. What's more important? What happens with the individual corporations or what, happening, or what happens today at 9.30 a.m. Eastern in Sintra with central bankers taking a hawkish tone? How much are they still in the driver's seat of what happens next? Central bankers are certainly still very much in the center of debate around uh, around what's going to happen in, in, in the economy, given uh, the challenges that they have in inflation. And you look at across the range of central banks, you have a pretty wide dispersion there as well. You have the U.S., which was more aggressive earlier on. Inflation has come down at a more rapid pace, although still we think will be a challenge to get down to the, to the Fed's target. On the other extreme, you've got Japan, which maintains a quite 
you know, permissive, if you will, monetary policy. And then, you know, the UK has got a real inflation problem. So they're, they've got to be more hawkish and, and these to be somewhere, somewhere in the middle. So that's going to be an important issue that we continue to watch uh, over the course of the second half of the year. What matters right now? I mean, Newberger Berman is priding itself on active management. I want to go into the history of what you accomplished with Lehman Brothers in a bit. But, uh, but the basic idea here away from passive active is factor analysis right now. What factors matter into the end of the year? Well, I think I think quality matters uh, for sure, uh, and profitability because if we're in our broad allocations, think more up in quality. Whether you're on the credit side or the equity side, I think you want you want to certainly be overweight that factor. Uh, and beta, you probably in, in our view, you want to be underweight beta in in that sense. You know, again, with a bit of a more defensive posture, even though we've neutralized our equity bet. Again, we still lean uh, toward lower beta, higher quality. I, I look at where we are and in a bull market unloved. Can you calibrate and see when a second leg of a bull market clicks in? I mean, there was 76, 77, which no one expected after the moonshot off of 74. Can you find a second leg of a bull market or do you just have to go back to core fundamental? analysis. I, I think the <clears throat> level of dispersion that exists within uh, the economy, I think, suggests we still need to do a lot of bottom-up analysis. As it relates to a, a bull market or where we are, um, it's been, you know, the, <laughs> the equity markets have been quite perplexing over the first half of the year because you've had a group of seven extraordinary <clears throat> stocks that are up 50, 60 percent that dominate the U.S. large cap index, as, as, again, you guys talk a lot about. And then you've got everything else. And that everything else has been flattish to up modestly. So that's been, you know, that's been a challenge if you're trying to invest and you see the index perform so well. Yet some of these, you know, very few active managers are going to put 40% of their portfolio in seven stocks, right, to be overweight the mega cap. So it's been, you feel as an active manager, you've been just chasing your tail over the first half of the year. We're speaking with Joe Motto of Newberger Berman, CIO for Equities, uh, over there at a time we are resetting into the new year and into the new half of the year. It feels like a new year. Uh, we've been talking a lot about some of the trends, and you said that there are a number of stocks that have dominated with 40, 50, 60% gains. I think chip makers. And then I think geopolitical risk and what we see this morning with a proposed uh, plan by the Biden administration. Are you going all in on AI? Are you seeing this as a lasting trend that can withstand any geopolitical tensions? Or are you kind of being more tepid about it? I think AI is going to be an incredible long-term trend for sure. I mean, that's going to be as profound as some of the things we've seen over the last 20, 25 years, you know, similar to the internet broadly, broadly <laughs> defined. Uh, but as we have seen with different technological innovations, you have sort of a boom-bust period, things consolidate, and then you have long-term growth. So I think AI is probably going to go through that, but it's going to be quite profound. I know from our firm standpoint, we're all in, we're diving in deeply in terms of how it can enhance our productivity and our investment insights. So it, it, it's quite quite important. At the same time, you raise the geopolitical issues, which having just been in China, uh, it, you, you know, it's an issue that we're very focused on. It's an issue the Chinese are very focused on. Um, and I think as it relates to AI, that's probably one of the most sensitive issues in the transfer of technology mm -hmm. between the U.S. and China. I think it's going to continue to be an issue. You guys talked about it this morning in terms of potential uh, uh, restrictions on, on, on selling chips. And now, folks, the most important conversation with Global Wall Street I'm going to cut to the chase. There's blood in the street. Credit Suisse is throwing thousands out. Every other firm is throwing those fancy IB bankers out the door that you can't stand. You and Jack Rivkin 
built Lehman Brothers from 1997 to 2003. I remember looking at the sell-side analyst, the the sheets rather. Lisa, this is when we had printed research reports. They got better every year until Lehman dominated uh, the business, Neuberger Berman involved with that, and all that. Is that a history of the past? Are we at a point now where we're taking the intellectual capital out of the business with all these layoffs, all this uproar that's going on in the street right now? I, I don't think so, Tom. I think the you know fundamental bottom-up analytical work that helped propel us back in the day uh, in terms of our own research rankings or the work that we do today at Newberger Berman is still hugely important. You have different tools that you use. Right, the bar is higher for sure. Um, uh, I think the sell side has underinvested in research over the course of the past decade or so. What do you what do you crisis, what do you but, want to see from the big banks? If we were having a conversation right now with Brian Moynihan on the future of Bank of America Securities Research, what would be your counsel to Mr. Moynihan? Oh, I, I think the the breadth of global research that these firms are committed to is important to us. We're a global investment manager, so there are a lot of parts of the globe, uh, whether it's the small cap space or large cap for that matter, that have less coverage. Now, in some respects, that's advantageous to active managers because we've invested a huge amount in research. Mm-hmm. So the more inefficient the sell side is, if you will, the more advantage we have as a buy side firm if we're committed to research. Uh, right. But that said, we value quality research, and if it's provided by whether it's Brian Moynihan's firm or you know right. other, other large firms, uh, well, that's super valuable to us. I don't want the dust break with the Credit Suisse resumes coming in. Joseph Amato is at Newberger Berman. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Right now joining us is Wei Li, Global Chief Investment Strategist at BlackRock, and there's always 14 things to talk about. I really want to lead with Secretary Yellen into China and what China means within an investment strategy. But I got to rip up the script here. There's a guy named Fink who's talking about something BlackRock has led on. You've been directly involved with this, which is the value, the efficacy, the usefulness of ESG. 
Uh, Larry's come out as, as a real proponent of talking about it <clears throat> and said it's been a challenging time out of the pandemic. A color for us how you are reinterpreting ESG right now within your investment strategy. Well, sustainable investing is investing, right? We're incorporating considerations around the impact of climate in our capital market uh, assumption. We're also uh, thinking about how the transition could <coughs> look like and really thinking about how that then is reflected in portfolio construction to what extent it is uh, um, uh, really in the price. So as we think about um, transition as one example of mega forces, what we're doing actually in uh, this uh, media outlook that we're releasing today is that we're prominently highlighting a few mega forces, including sustainability and transition uh, to net zero, but also including geopolitical fragmentation, uh, including aging demographics, including AI, to really incorporate those uh, mega forces in portfolio construction. As you put the review out, two days left in the first half of the year. What changes for you in terms of your positioning after six months of being really cautious? Um, well, I think the biggest uh, change is as we think about kind of the environment where yields have risen, is that we're actually, within fixed income, excited about opportunities uh, across the spectrum. So we have been talking a lot about front end of the curve, which we still like, but we're actually also putting cash to work across the broader exposures uh, in uh, fixed income, including uh, MBS, mortgage-backed securities, including inflation-linked bonds, especially in the US, and also including high-grade credit and local currency emerging market debt. And more broadly, as we think about what has <coughs> changed, we're rolling out the new investment playbook where the first layer is around uh, macro-based asset allocation, but macro can only take us this far in this environment of supply constraint. So we're also thinking about having the second layer of very granular, uncorrelated uh, individual uh, uh, investment uh, opportunities to over lay on top of the first layer. And then the third layer is the mega forces that I just talked about. Where is the idiosyncrasy of artificial intelligence in the overlay that you talk about? Well, um, so far, if you look at markets this year, it's been a very narrow thematic markets, right? So that has taught us that just <coughs> base uh, asset allocation on macro assessment alone is not enough anymore. Um, so far, uh, we have talked about a bias towards quality, a tilt towards quality in our U.S. equity uh, allocation. But what we're doing differently at this media outlook is to break that out and explicitly call out a conviction in uh, developed market uh, AI, which we have had indirect exposure towards. But now we want to call them out explicitly because the interplay between the cyclical framing and the structural mega forces is so complicated and nuanced yeah. that we cannot afford to model them and mix them up together. Your essay and outlook here is a view from 60,000 feet. It is very macro. It is very big picture. And in the middle of it is a massive micro reality. You say that the pandemic supply constraints mm -hmm. that have affected the world will have a persistency, mm -hmm. that they will be permanent in some way. That's a stunning statement. Mm. Why can't we get back to supply demand normality? 
Um, while some of that supply constraint is pandemic induced, but a lot of that is getting washed out in terms of the cyclical pandemic induced supply constraint. But what we are putting out, uh, which we have been uh, of the view for a while, is that we're moving away from the last 30, 40 years of uh, great moderation characterized by demand shocks to the current environment characterized by supply constraint coming from structural forces like the net zero transition, like geopolitical fragmentation, and also aging uh, demographics. And what that means uh, in the context of this week being the Sintra uh, week is that when it comes to central bank policy, you know, during the great moderation, uh, because of uh, the structural right. disinflation, they are uh, they were inclined to keep policy easy. And oh, come, come on, to they the had a rescue. free lunch for 15 years. That was easy. And then now they are in an environment where they are actually, uh, they need to keep policy tight in order to lean against okay. this inflationary pressure. Mathematically, what we've got here is we finally got a return to a risk-free rate. We've got mm -hmm. a legitimate sharp ratio without question. Some of the traditional dynamics you and I studied in, in books. What does that mean for the Sintra panel today? What are you going to listen for from these people about their new reality, which is a reality from 17 years ago? Uh, their new reality is the reality from maybe even 30, 40 years uh, ago, right? Because the great moderation is over, including the period after great, uh, well, after the global financial crisis. So what I will be paying attention to is to understand if they acknowledge the trade-offs facing them, which is that the cost of fighting inflation in a supply-constrained environment is a lot higher. So if they acknowledge that, and also number two, what are they going to choose when faced with this stark trade-off, growth or inflation? There's a real tension when you were speaking. Mm. Is there a possibility for markets, for U.S. equities to rally, even if we do get a recession, and even if the Fed does become very hawkish and we get that? Is that what you're saying, that you could still see the market respond in an untraditional way to a central bank induced slowdown. While uh, U.S. equity markets currently, the broad market is still pricing in earnings to accelerate in the second half of the year, which in the context of growth slowdown is too optimistic, which is why as we think about our allocation for the broader market, when it comes to U.S. Uh, equities, we have a minus one out of a scale of minus three to plus three and translating <coughs> that into portfolios, uh, mm. global portfolio, U.S. equities, the benchmark is around 33%. This minus uh, one modest underweight translates to about 31%. So we're invested, but we're modestly underweight. Right. Now, having said that, there are themes that we would like to embrace, such as artificial intelligence. So we kind of add that on top of the broad market underweight, uh, right. modest underweight, uh, to get to uh, a closer uh, to neutral, but not right. quite there, which is still uh, a, a modest underweight. Whaley, thank you so much. With BlackRock. What is it about the airlines? Helene Becker joins us now, senior research analyst, most hated person in the world at TD Cowan uh, this morning. <laughs> Helene, I'm just going to cut to the chase. Who do we blame for this early summer mess? Uh, well, so, so it's weather, um, and then there's there's the airlines who who are prepared, but um, there's the government who's not prepared. So the airlines are doing less with more. That they have more employees now than they did in 2018, but the government has fewer <coughs> air traffic controllers now than they did four years ago, and this mess is going to continue for the next at least five or seven years because the FAA doesn't seem to have a plan 
to resolve the shortage of air traffic controllers. We're supposed to have 14,000. We only have 11. Um, I think something like 2,500 retired uh, in the last couple mm-hmm. of years. And the government is was supposed to hire 1,500 this year, could only find uh, something like 960 or 70. Um, we expect about half that many to retire and half that many to wash out. So they're only going to net about 500. And when you're short 3,500, into 3,000 is six. So yeah, this problem's going to last for a while. Some of us of a certain vintage can remember staying in any great train station, South Station, Boston, Union Station uh, in Washington. I spent a whole night once in the Omaha train station. And the trains used to be like people all lined up going in eight different directions. Are we asking too much of the airlines to be like our train stations of another time and place? Is it too much to ask for Newark to be the old Penn Central? And it's not, it's, and it should be, it, it should not have these problems. The, the airlines, I mean, the airports, I'll start there, are just bursting at the seams because demand is just so strong. Um, United is forecasting that between June 30th and September 5th or 4th, whenever Labor Day is, they're going to carry 5 million passengers. And if you kind of extrapolate that out to American and Delta, it's probably similar. So that's 15 million right there. And then you add in all the other airlines, you probably have another 9 or 10 million. So we're looking at 24, 25 million people that are going to travel over the next three months, rest of June, what's that, two months, July and August. And um, in the, the industry should be able to handle it. They have relatively new aircraft. You, you look at American Delta United, they've all been refleeting. Um, most of the other airlines, uh, JetBlue, Spirit, um, Frontier, Southwest, they also have young fuel efficient fleets. And so it's not an aircraft maintenance problem. It's just that um, weather rolls in and the FAA goes on a ground stop. And instead of lifting it in, in an hour or half an hour, um, they la- it lasts for three or five hours, and then crews start to time out. I mean, yeah. we still have the safest airline system in the world. So you, you add all that, and you add all these people in um, into the mix, and-, and you wind up with these awful delays and cancellations and unhappy travelers. Elaine, yesterday we did hear from Delta CEO at their annual meeting, and he acknowledged that business travel is still 25% below where it was pre-pandemic. Given all the roadblocks, given the expense, do you expect it to get back to the same levels that it used to be? So, Lisa, yes and no. (laughs) The typical analyst answer. So, so, So when you think about business travel and GDP, it should get back to, it should be the same percentage of GDP as it was in the past. And and I think what you don't see um, is that people are just traveling differently. And um, from a corporate, like large corporate tech, for example, tech people from the tech industry haven't really come back. Financial services hasn't really come back. So from that perspective, we're not expecting it to come back, but we are expecting the same number of people to travel for work as we've seen in the past on a relative to GDP basis. But think about it, Lisa, we're seeing two and a half to 2.7 million people a day travel. That's what we saw in 2018 with 25% more business travelers and 15% more international travelers. And Helene, to that point, and just quickly here, there has been a shift under the cover of businesses 
using economy instead of business class because of how much the prices there have risen and companies trying to restrain costs. How much is that part of why costs, why the revenues for some of these airlines isn't picking up from business in the same kind of way? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so customers, businesses are trading down from business class to premium, premium economies. And, um, and then people are using mileage, their own miles to upgrade into, into the front cabin. So we definitely are seeing that. And yes, Lisa, that's a part of it too. What's your single best buy? Um, so our top three picks are United, Delta and Copa Airlines in that order. Interesting. What's a United Delta distinction? Um, so United's bigger in international markets right now than Delta is. United is about 50% international, 50% domestic and Delta 60-40 domestic international. And the travel is really international this summer. So that's that's the difference. Helene Becker, brilliant. Thank you so much. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Paul, you know, it's, it's, it's widely understood. I mean, whether you go to Rosie's or Flora, I mean, the yep. fact is every day is brunch day in the Hamptons. Sure, yeah. Tearing himself away from brunch, <laughs> a three-hour brunch. Joining us now, Douglas Cass, Usius Cass in Florida. It is a pleasure to speak to the Bob Weir and John Mayer business commentators. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of fun with it. And your coverage, frankly, folks, uh, I'm not a deadhead. I mean, I'm really not. I'm, I'm a child compared to Jerome Powell. Uh, <laughs> but I, I got to admit, uh, Doug, your spirit of covering the Dead & Company, traveling around in honor of 50 years of music has been great. Were you in Ithaca when I was when we were buying <laughs> white bootleg albums? <laughs> uh, by the way, um, 
the the greatest um, universally agreed that the greatest Grateful Dead concert ever was in Barton Hall at Cornell University, May eighth, nineteen seventy seven. And what was really? was great about that was you'd go over to the Rangovian Embassy. Oh yeah. You know, across the way and load up at the Rangovian Embassy before you went to the concert. Uh, Doug All aside, Paul, you remember uh, Fred, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the sure. great German philosopher, once said, "Without music, life would uh, be a mistake." And I think it's true. I'm, I'm down with that. Sure. Uh, uh, Doug, by I got, the way, last thing on last thing on the dead. I was at yeah. the Palestra in November 1970 in your fair city. It was one of the 15 uh, marvelous Grateful Dead concerts. Doug, I think just there's a lot to talk about here, but I really think we've got to talk about market positioning right now. Unfortunately, the three of us have a fond memory of a leg up in 74 and the absolute shock of the second leg up, I believe, in December of 76 or 77. What does a second leg of a bull market look like, and particularly if you're not in play? Well, I think uh, it's a great question. Um, an unexpected question. I think it's very humbling trying to trade against a prime, a primary or bull market trend, um, which some of us have been trying to do over the last two months. Mm-hmm. You know, it requires discipline. I've always said that most retail investors shouldn't short stocks uh, because, uh, for a number of reasons, but it does require a huge amount of uh, price discipline and uh, money management control that most people don't have. Um, but this too shall pass. It does remind me of the post, uh, the liquidity um, infused in the market post uh, uh, Bear Stearns being acquired by J.P. Morgan and Lehman in 2008. And you remember we had a, a similar uh, rally of maybe 12 or 13%, which led to a 22% decline. And I, I'm fearful of the markets, both in absolute terms and when compared to the credit markets. Um, I think I think we have to think in terms of the boiling frog syndrome. <laughs> so, uh, so Doug, I mean, you, you take a look at the S and P. I mean, that's, the boiling frog, frog system yes. is also when in hell does judge come back? <laughs> exactly, we could use that in a big way. You told me you weren't going to talk about that yet. <laughs> So, Doug, what do you do when, when you when you look at an S and P up you know up twenty two percent off that October low? That's a bull market, but I think if you ask the, you know the person on the street, they're not feeling it necessarily. So, what do you do from here? Well, the question I ask myself is not whether I should be net short, which I am, but rather how short I should be. And again, recognizing at the same time how humbling um, trading against a trend can be, and how disciplined you have to be to avoid losses. But at the core of my concern is the level and path of interest rates. And um, if we solely look at interest rates versus stock prices and valuations, equities really are more overvalued against rates today than they were at the end of uh, 2021, which is saying something. And the divergences between valuations and real rates is as wide as I've seen in more than a decade. If you think about it, valuations have risen on the S&P from about 15 times to close to 20 times since the October lows, while inflation-adjusted interest rates have stayed elevated, as you just mentioned in the last segment, against the 10-year, it's about 1.5%. So higher rates typically reduce the present value of future cash flows and valuations. So relationships, to me, are out of whack. 
and I'm watching for uh, a mean reversion. In addition, the equity risk premium is unattractive and also just suggests that credit is cheaper than equities. And finally, the S&P dividend yield is all the way down to 1.55%. Compare that to the one-year right. note yield of 5.4%, <clears throat> again, a multi-decade right. wide. Doug Cass, for your supporters... And for those that go after you each and every day, particularly out on the Elon Musk scape, um, I, I'm fascinated by a simple question. How do you know when to cover a short? What's the setup methodology you use to say enough, I'm out? Well, you know, I've, I, I lecture at Bob Schiller's course at, at Yale Business School, second year advanced economics course, and I have a three and a half our lecture on short selling, of which about half of it is structure of short selling, um, and I'm a short. I'm a. I'm not a short seller. I'm a. I'm. I'm a legitimate long short um, hedge fund manager who has basically a bias towards the short side. Whereas most long short guys have like 99 percent are biased towards the long side. And what I do is I start positions very small and kind of funnel in on strength. Um, so I actually want, in the beginning, the short to go against myself. And then, okay, you get up to your net short position that you feel comfortable well, with. Well, the other thing, Paul, is that uh, my, in terms of sizing short positions, absolutely, and vis-a-vis -vis sizing long positions, my maximum size on a short is about one and a half percent versus, say, a maximum of four or five right. percent on a long position. So that sort okay. of explains right. to you. The I create. Remember, there are three problems with short selling. Number one, the gravitational pull of yep. of stocks is higher over time. Number two, obviously, a short sale provides an asymmetric risk reward. You can only make a hundred percent if you find a bankruptcy, but you can lose an infinite amount as uh, NVIDIA or Resorts right. or Bob Wilson found out in mm -hmm. Resorts International. And the final thing, which people don't really discuss, is that when a short goes against you, its weighting increases, but when a long goes against you, in other right, words, a long right. goes down, it's sort of systemic risk control yeah. because the weighting is reduced. Oh, we got to leave it there. We're out of time. But Doug Cast, that was a fabulous. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.